But the last couple of days, I was um, in Calgary at a conference with other pastors. And uh, I got asked numerous times what book I'm preaching through right now. And uh, I had to hang my head and tell them we were in a topical series. And, uh, and then hand over my card, you know, my credentials to them. Um, so we are indeed in a series right now on the biblical basis of Christian unity. And I make no apology for that. Uh, but that's what we're doing. Uh, last week we were in John chapter 17. Today we're in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Last week we looked at how Christian unity is something that begins with what God does, that He causes people to be born again. He gathers us into one body, into uh, Christ's spiritual body, with Christ Jesus as the head. This spiritual reality comes first. It comes before any external unity. We talked about that last time. To put external unity first as like an organization of some kind or a denomination or whatever it might be, Ahead of that is, is backwards and not right, not biblical. So it begins with what God does. That's what we saw last week. And today we're going to look at how we then, as believers, are called to maintain the unity of the Spirit, which speaks to our practice, our pursuit. And we're going to see that there is also this, uh, a unity. It's spoken of as something that we are seeking to attain. So it's something that we have. We are one in Christ. It's something we're to keep or maintain. And it's something for which we are reaching as well. So it's sort of like how Christians are, uh, when, they are when we are uh, born again, we are justified before God. We're declared righteous before Him. We're called holy. You know, we're, we're called saints. This happens upon our conversion. This is a reality, a real thing, Uh, and yet in our lives, we know we still sin. sin. Sin still remains, and therefore we are also pursuing Christ's likeness. We're pursuing godliness. We talk about this as progressive sanctification. So we're declared righteous, but we're also still pursuing the practice of righteousness, right? We're trying to align ourselves in our practice with who we are in Christ, who we really are, what is true in Christ. Similarly, Christians are one, we are one, based on the fact that there is one body, which we'll see more of, but experientially we're also called to work on this unity. We're to be pursuing unity in our practice. And as with the pursuit of holiness... Our pursuit of unity and and the arriving at a perfect unity will come ultimately at the end. So when the Lord Jesus returns and His people receive um, perfected bodies, resurrected bodies, we sin no more at that point, sin will be dealt with. It is at that time then that we will be perfectly one. Our unity will be complete. We will all be on the same page in every way. And the Father, as we saw last week in John 17, the Father, in answer to His Son's prayer, 
he will ensure that that day comes, that that will in fact happen. Right? Remember, Jesus prayed and asked the Father to keep us, keep his people, that we may be perfectly one. The Father will keep that prayer, and ultimately it will be fulfilled at the end. But, as we see here, unity is, is not something that we therefore uh, simply take for granted, you know, based on the fact that it is firstly a, a work of God. It's also something that we are called to maintain, something we are called to work toward. And we're going to see that as we turn now to Ephesians chapter 4. I invite you to open your Bibles there. It's going to tell us we're to maintain unity and that we're to work towards unity and a little of how it is that we are to do that. And what we're going to see is that unity is maintained through the pursuit of Christian maturity. This is what Paul is going to point us to, that one of the ways we maintain this unity and we seek greater unity is through Christian maturity in our practice, in our doctrine, and so on. Unity comes through maturity. So, here's the outline, the three things we're going to look at. Uh, Unity through maturity begins with one foundation, verses 1 to 6. Unity through maturity involves every member exercising their spiritual gifts. That's the second. It's verses 7 to 12. And then finally, unity through maturity involves growth in doctrine and Christ-likeness. It'll be verses 13 to 16. So unity is maintained through the pursuit of Christian maturity. So number one, unity through maturity begins with the one foundation. With one foundation. So turn with me, Ephesians 4, verse 1. Paul writes this, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This verse marks a transition in the book of Ephesians. We're kind of, you know, we're, we're dropping in here to the, to the middle of the book, but this uh, marks a transition. For the first three chapters, Paul has primarily been laying out um, doctrine and theological truths um, concerning the glories of our salvation. And now this, therefore marks a clear transition to the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, where he's going to get into more practical matters. And this therefore means that he's grounding the practical truths, the things that he's calling us to do, the action he wants of believers, are grounded in the, in, in the, the theological and doctrinal truths of chapters 1 to 3. As a result of of all the truths laid out for these first three chapters, Paul now says, therefore, and he's going to give a lot of different instructions. So this is really a transition to the whole second half of the book. And the first issue on the table for Paul in chapter 4 is this issue of unity, this issue of unity in, in the church. So we already see before he even talks about unity that um, that, that, that doctrine precedes unity. Okay? His, his, his instructions of unity are grounded and rooted in the theological and doctrinal truths of the first three chapters. So again, that just we'll see this even more as we keep going, but that confirms what we saw last week in, in John 17. You don't begin with external unity. Um, that's, that's not the case. 
So uh, verse 2, so he calls them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And so these are the, the graces, the things that we need in order to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, in order to walk in unity, which is the thing he's going to get to here finally, this first significant thing he wants to address of, of how it is we are to walk worthy of our, our calling as Christians. So re- verse 3 now, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Maintaining unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So here we have this call very clearly to maintain unity. It's called the unity of the Spirit, which means that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the source of this unity, uh, that it's from Him. Okay, so we're maintaining something that He gives, something that He creates. It says it's the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. shows that the, the bond that binds believers together is, is one of peace. We are bound by, by peace. All of this we're told to maintain. So again, notice that it's something that's already there. It's already been created. And we're just called to keep this, to maintain it. We don't fabricate this unity of the Spirit it's given from the Spirit. It's His unity. We then are called to, to keep it, maintain it. That word, maintain, it's the idea of uh, keeping, of preserving, guarding, holding on to. That's what he means when he says we maintain this. And I, I understand this to mean that we are called to, to maintain uh, or, or preserve its visibility outwardly. So this is a, a truth Inwardly, as we saw last week, we're part of one body. We'll see this more in a second. Uh, And we're called to to maintain this, to preserve this in a visible way, in a a way. Our practice should match that which is true of us. That is, that we are one. So as those born again, we should seek to outwardly reflect that which is inwardly true. Namely, that we are, in fact, united. And he's going to expand on this foundation of this unity in the next Verses. So read with me verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So he begins verse 4 by noting that there is one body. And this is, again, really what we discussed last week, what we talked about last week, that, um, that Christians, when we are born again, we are united to Christ, we become part of His body, and we are therefore united with one another. And, and Paul is saying here, there's only one of these bodies. There's ultimately one body of Christ. Not two, not thirty. There's one, ultimately. A local gathering like ours here, like this one, is just a, a local manifestation of the one body of Christ. But there's ultimately only one, one body. And this is foundational and helpful in our understanding of unity and what it is we're seeking to, to keep and, 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 and build and develop. So he goes on then to say there's one spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. And then that phrase that comes after it there in verse 4 uh, is describing the work of the Spirit, the Spirit's work in redemption. He says, uh, just as you were, let me find that, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your 
call. So the Spirit is the person of the Trinity who calls us to our hope. He regenerates us. He unites us to Christ. He applies the uh, redemption that Christ purchases on the cross to believers. He brings us to Christ. It's His work. And that's what Paul's talking about. There's one Spirit, and He's the one who calls us to our one hope. He awakens us. There is one hope that we're called to, he says. Hope in Ephesians is really our hope of an eternal inheritance being kept for us. Uh, The end of chapter 1, verses 11 to 14, you can see this. It's essentially the hope of eternal life. Our hope that one day our sin will be completely and utterly gone. We'll have resurrected bodies. We will be with the Lord. This is the hope that we cling to, the hope that we have. That all we go through now, we're living in light of that day. This is our hope, the hope of eternal redemption. Verse 5, Jesus, uh, it's, Paul says there's one Lord, referring to Jesus, the Son. There's one Savior. There's one Mediator. He's the Lord. He's Jesus Christ. He says there's one faith. Refers to the um, ob- objective faith. That is, that uh, what Jude 3 talks, refers to as the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, it's a reference to the, the content of what we believe. There is one faith. It's another way of saying there's one gospel. There's only one way of salvation. There's not two, there's not three, there's one. There's one way. All of Ephesians really has been expounding this one faith and what it is. Uh, we see it uh, chapter 1. We see the Father in love predestining His children uh, and... and, and, and um, Redeeming us in Christ. Chapter 2, there's a helpful summary of this salvation, this one faith. In chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Not a result of works. Or sorry, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's no other way for a person to be saved There's no other gospel. There's one faith. A sinner is justified by faith. In chapter 3, verse 6, if you flip back, you'll see there, um, Paul talks about how Jews and Gentiles were both united in the same body. Uh, And he says, if you you look at verse 6 of chapter 3, the mystery is this, that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. Okay, one body, one church, Jew and Gentile together, and they're partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Right? It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's through this one faith that we enter into the one body, that we become members of the same body. And so, do you see there, this in this, the centrality of the gospel to unity? There's one faith. So there, if somebody wants to speak of another faith or another way of salvation, there is no unity there. The gospel is central. This one faith is central. Uh, Paul says also one baptism. This is not so much talking about um, the mode of baptism. Do we immerse? Do we sprinkle? Um, it's, it's less about that. It's not really dealing with that. 
it really it's more pointing towards the reality that our water baptism symbolizes. That is, it's another reference to our union with Christ in his death going under the water and in his resurrection coming out. So this is Romans 6.3 says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. This is going under the water symbolizes this. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is when he says there's one baptism. That's what he's talking about. Galatians 3.27 puts it like this. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So water baptism symbolizes our union with Christ. Especially our union with him in, our, in his death and resurrection. So just as Jesus died, rose again from the dead, as so though we were with him, dying to sin and rising again to newness of life. So that there is one Lord, there is one faith, and there is one baptism. Just as there is one Spirit and one Lord, in verse 6, he says there is one God and Father, and that He rules all things. He's ruler over all. He is present everywhere. Okay, this is, what he's saying here is, is what we see in Romans 11.36, a similar thing where he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So what Paul's doing in these first six verses is he's exhorting us, he's exhorting his readers to maintain this unity that is founded upon the triune God and the one work of salvation. So you, you see that here. One Spirit, one Lord, Jesus, one God and Father. Just as there is one God, one way of salvation, uh, this, is the, this is why we should preserve unity. This is why it's appropriate, why it's right. This is what any external unity is founded upon. We are one body and we have unity in our salvation, so we're called to keep this. So as we saw again last week, unity begins with the work of God. We've seen it here in uniting us to Christ and saving sinners. We talked last week about how this, when we speak of conversion, it's a, a real conversion. That a Christian is somebody who is actually made new. They've actually been given a new heart. They, they hate the sin they, they once loved and now they actually desire uh, to keep the commands of God. They all desire to do what pleases Him. They're made new. We're new people. God converts us, makes us part of Christ's body. And this is a reality we can't touch. You know, we can't reach out and touch it. But it's true. It's a real thing. It actually happens. And so again, this unity, it doesn't begin with externals or organizations, but inwardly. And so we, we see in all of this, and in what Paul's saying here, that doctrine is inescapably at the core of unity. These are truths that we can't get around, and we can't bypass for some sort of other pursuit of unity. True unity is predicated on the one work of salvation by the one triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy 
Spirit. And all of these things here, they need defining. And Paul has been defining it throughout Ephesians. And we've seen just a little bit of that in looking back. So if we're going to talk about unity, it begins with the work of God and it begins with the gospel. You can't avoid doctrine. This one foundation of our salvation is where unity begins and it's this we build on. Number two, Unity through maturity involves every member exercising their spiritual gifts. So read with me verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So through, Galatia, or through Ephesians, Paul has been talking to a church that has both Jews and Gentiles in it. And if you're uh, reading between the lines, you can see that they're wondering how this, they fit together. And Paul's helping them uh, understand their oneness despite some of their differences how it is they are united, helping them understand their common salvation. And it's because of this that they are part of one body and should therefore outwardly display unity. So he acknowledges they have differences, and here again in verse 7, he also acknowledges some differences, that they've, namely that they've been given different gifts. This is what he means when he says that grace has been given to them in various measures. It's a reference to the gracious gifts that God gives his people. And they've been given different ones and different measures of these gifts. And so they've received different grace. That's what he's talking about. And so we see as, as he begins then to talk about gifts here in Ephesians 4, that this is showing us that the Lord has given us these tools to help us maintain unity. And help us work towards greater unity. And, and the, one of the ways the Lord helps us with this is by, by giving gifts to us. He then quotes Psalm 68 in verse 8 there. To show that when Christ ascended to heaven in victory over death and victory over the spiritual forces of darkness. These are the captives he's leading forth in, in Psalm 68 there in verse 8 here in Ephesians 4. As Jesus ascended to heaven in victory over death, the spiritual forces of darkness, after his resurrection, it says he gave gifts to men, that is, to his people. And then in, in verse 9, if you have an ESV, you'll see a bracket goes around verses 9 and 10, this parenthesis, where he explains this a little bit more to show that Psalm 68 is ultimately talking about Christ. It's ultimately fulfilled by Jesus, and that the reference to his ascension assumes that he descended to earth at his incarnation. That's, that's what he's talking about there. He's saying this is, this is about Christ and it's talking about an ascension because we know Jesus descended to earth first and then we, we know from the book of Acts that he then ascended to heaven 
where he sits at the right hand of the Father, and this is presenting him, Paul's telling us, he, as he ascended, he did that triumphantly in victory. And when he got there, among other things, he's, he's given gifts to men. We know that he sent the Spirit, and it's through the Spirit that we are given these gifts. This is why they're called spiritual gifts. They are from the Spirit. This is, the, this is what Paul's referencing here in these, in these verses. And so re- read with me verse 11. And he gave, talking gifts still, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So after speaking generally in verses 7 to 10 about how the Lord has given gifts and different measures of these gifts to different people, in verse 11 he then focuses in on specific gifts related to teaching. Specific gifts related to the, the teaching of His Word. Apostles and prophets are listed. And, in, and back in chapter 2, verse 20, we see that the apostles and prophets played a foundational role in the life of the church. These gifts are no longer in operation today, we would say. They were foundational, part of the foundation of the church. He says, mentions here evangelists, shepherds, teachers... He focuses on these gifts here, these teaching gifts, these equipping gifts, because the word that is being taught that these people are are, are teaching and, and giving to people, presenting to people, sharing with people, the word is crucial to the unity of the church. The word of God is essential to the unity of the church. In verse 12, we see um, one of the purposes of these gifts, these teaching gifts. First, well, act, well okay, so, so the, the, the first purpose we see is that it's to equip the saints, right? You see that in verse 12? Why are these guys given? Why are these gifts given? To equip the saints. And then there's two things they're equipped to do. The first is for the work of ministry. Ministry, we tend to think of, is for people who get paid to do it or who do that as their full-time thing or the missionaries or pastors or whatever. They're in the ministry. That's the the way we often use that word. And sometimes that's unhelpful. It's not a terrible thing, but it can be an unhelpful thing because, as we see here, ministry is not just for missionaries. It's not just for pastors. It's for the church. That actually, part of what my role is 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 teaching and equipping so that we all together do the work of the ministry. It's the collective work of the body in serving the Lord. So this includes preaching, this includes teaching and evangelism, but it also includes the exercise of all other gifts. So it's for the work of the ministry, equip saints for the work of the ministry. Secondly, to equip saints for the building up of the body. The saints are built up, we're told, as they are taught and equipped and as they exercise their gifts. This phrase, building up of the body, it's a picture of growth and maturity. Think of, remember, he's using body analogy here to describe the church. And so when he talks about building up, it's growing. We're going to see in a second, mature manhood. It's going to be contrasted to being a child. So he's using this idea of a a boy, of a child growing into maturity, being built up. And as we'll see in verse 13, we're to do this 
We're to exercise our gifts, to encourage each other, edify each other, build each other up. We're to do this until we attain to the unity of the faith. So the maturity that comes as we exercise our gifts is part of the process of maintaining and building up our unity. So that's what spiritual gifts are for. They're there to build one another up in maturity, which leads us towards unity. The teaching gifts equip in order that we all might use gifts and use them rightly as we understand our mission on this earth together. Jump down to verse 16 for a second. Notice there, there's this emphasis again on everyone using their gifts. He says, the whole body, whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, that is every member who's equipped for service, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Christ grows his body and moves his church towards unity as we are equipped and exercise our gifts. So Christ grows his body by giving gifts. So maintaining Christian unity is not just for some of us, but rather it's something we're all involved in. It's a whole body pursuit. This is why the body is such a good analogy for the church. Because every part matters. Every part plays a role. Uh, Some parts are, are different. There's different jobs. But I would submit to you that you probably don't want to lose any part of your body. Your fingernails, you probably want to keep those. Your pinky finger, we, could we do without it? Well, sure, we can get by, but you don't want to lose it. You'd rather not. Every part matters. Every part plays a role. In the church, the reality is we, we are not all gifted in the same way. And we, we do not do all the same things well. And this is why we need each other. This is part of the Lord's design. We all have giftedness. We're all called to exercise our gifts in service to the Lord and to His people. To build one another up. When we think of spiritual gifts, I think often we tend to think about the miraculous gifts. Healing, miracles, prophets, apostles, which we, again, as we've said and have taught before, which we teach uh, were temporarily given in the apostolic age, these miraculous gifts. But there are also ministering gifts or service, gifts of service meant to equip one another, meant to build each other up. And the Bible doesn't give an exhaustive list of these spiritual gifts. The lists we have of them come in a few different texts, but they're they're different. Some, Some gifts are listed in multiple places, but there's a number of gifts that are listed in one place only. So these lists are a little different, which I, I think suggests that, um, that these lists are not exhaustive. In a similar way, when you see a virtue or vice list in the New Testament, um, just because a bunch of bad things are listed, it doesn't mean that's all of the bad things, right? It's a sampling of, of, the, of the vices. Just like virtues, 
when we see virtue lists, it's not all virtues in the world. It's not an exhaustive list. It's a sample of them. I think it's similar with, with these spiritual gift lists. And these gifts of service essentially are skills or talents that can be applied in the service of Christ for the building up of His church. So, I, want, I do want to list a few of these to just, just help, us, help us see these. Because some of these, I think, are maybe downplayed or lesser you know, emphasized ones. We immediately want to talk about the role of healing and all those things in, when we talk about spiritual gifts. But let's focus on some of these other ones for a moment. Wisdom. Discernment. Helping. Administration. Uh, Romans 12 mentions service. Teaching, again, listed. Exhortation. Giving. Giving is listed as a spiritual gift. Some people have been blessed. The Lord has blessed their endeavors at work. They've made good money. They have a desire to give. That's a gift. It's a wonderful gift. It's a good gift. Leading, which is probably in reference to the elders. Mercy is a gift. 1 Peter 4.9 mentions hospitality. Some of these things appear quite ordinary. But when used in the service of the Lord, they're a wonderful gift to the church. They build up the church. The reality is, some of us are just better than others at some of these things. Some of you... You hear of something that happens and your heart just breaks and you just think, well, how can I help? And others of us, we, we just aren't as, we're not as sensitive that way. We should be. It's not good. It's not an excuse to be hardened. But for some of you, you just, I want to jump to action. I want to help. What can I do? And you're ready to go. And, and, and how we need that as a church. Very, some of you are just gifted with mercy. As we learn, as we open the Word, as we teach the Word, as we learn what it means to be a faithful church, to be faithful as believers, some of us will excel at different aspects more than others. This is God's way of, the Lord's way of of preserving us, of building us up together, of saying you need one another, you don't all serve the same function. It's a beautiful picture, it's a beautiful thing. We need everybody. So I ask you, what gifts do you possess? What strengths do you have? What, that, you, that you can be employing in, the ser- in service to the Lord and in service to other believers. How might you help others? How might you exercise mercy if you, f- if you feel that way? If you, if you are gifted in that? You're called to this. You're called to exercise your gifts. Don't think we don't need you, that other people around you don't need you. They do. And if you wonder what that gift is for you, what it is you might have to offer, then let's talk. You know, talk with others around you and let's 
you know, let's, some, because sometimes we don't know. We look inwardly and we see it looks all bad to me, so what could I possibly give? But that's not true. If, if this is true, what Paul is saying, then you have a gift and every part of the body matters and we need you. And this is essential to our growth, our maturity as a church, and our unity. We need one another. This is not a solo effort. So as we use our gifts, we're actually building one another up in maturity, which preserves and builds unity. Let's see this more. Uh, Number three here. Unity through maturity involves growth in doctrine and Christ-likeness. So the Lord has given gifts, teaching gifts to equip saints for ministry and for service to one another. Now read verse 13. We do this until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is the goal. Now again, we've seen that unity is something we are given, but now we're told it's something that we're to attain, we're to work towards, we're to exercise these gifts until we attain unity. Specifically, the unity of the faith, he says. Again, this is referring to the perfecting or the maturing of the unity that we share. It is the practice of unity which needs maintenance and growth. There is an experiential or an outward visible unity that we are to be seeking, that we're trying to reach. We want to be one. That's that's what we are to desire. That's what Paul is saying. These gifts help us get there. And so we we should want our practice to align with the reality of the fact that we are one body. And we see here first that this unity involves doctrinal growth. It is referred to as the unity of the faith. That is Again, this, this faith once for all delivered to the saints, it's this content of what we believe, we're to be unified in this, and he says, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So one goal of being taught, of being equipped, is growth in and unity of our doctrine, our understanding of Christ, our understanding of the, the faith. We should be, as a church, seeking to grow together in our understanding of the faith and in our knowledge of Christ Jesus. And notice, see this, that this is linked directly to maturity. As we grow in this way, we are reaching, he says, mature manhood. So our unity comes through maturity. Which here is very clearly, first, a doctrinal Maturity. You need an understanding of faith and our understanding of the knowledge of Christ. But second, this unity is also, or we also see here, a unity that, that, that unity and maturity involves growth in Christ's likeness. He says again, we're to practice these gifts and build each other up until we attain the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Christ's fullness, that is, all that He is in His perfections, all that He is in His 
righteousness, His holiness, this is our goal. It's another way of saying Christ's likeness, the, the measure of the fullness of Christ. In our character, in our actions, in our thoughts, our being, our goal for one another and for ourselves is to reach Christ's likeness. The fullness of the measure of Christ, as Paul says it. So this is one of the goals of building one another up in the Word and through the exercise of our various gifts. We should want to see Christ formed in one another. So, for example, if you know somebody is somebody's struggling and you think, maybe, you know, could I help? Maybe I could write them a card. The, the, part of the goal there is to help them to, to press through that that you would desire for them to press on and to grow in Christ's likeness, to remind them of their hope in Christ, to say, don't give up now, friend, keep going. And if you are good at, you know, that's that, that gift of, of mercy, you know, you're being compassionate, you're exhorting that person, you're saying, you know, keep going. Right? This is what we're doing. We're, we're pushing and spurring one another on to Christ's likeness as we serve one another as we administrate matters in the church, what's our goal? Our goal is that we would be one in our understanding of the gospel and the faith and the understanding of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, but also that we would be, come, be becoming more like Christ. We all have better things, you know, you, you, you don't have to, we're not here just to have a good time. Uh, you could all employ your skills and your administrative skills and all these things. You could do that and make money elsewhere and you could save yourself the time and hassle of coming here. The reason we use these things here is that we want to see each other reach the end and we want to build one another up in the faith and reach this unity of the faith together and see one another mature and grow into the fullness of the measure of Christ. So even as we encourage each other, stay the course, lift up your head, see the greatness of your God, press on. Again, this external unity that we are are seeking to attain is ultimately fulfilled in the end eschatologically. When we will be perfected and we will be made one in every way. As I've said, just as our sanctification will be complete then, so too our pursuit of unity will become complete then. We will attain this on that day, though we work toward it now. Just as Paul is able to say, he's not yet reached perfection, but I'm going for it, I'm pursuing it. And he knew it would come at the end, but in this, still now, I'm still going for it. So we know ultimate perfect unity will come at the end, but we're still called, let's go hard for it now. In verse 14, Paul states the goal of being built up uh, then in a negative way. So, so on the positive side, we're to, attain, we're to attain unity, the fullness of the measure of Christ. But then in verse 14, he says, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So the goal of being equipped is maturity and oneness in doctrine, maturity in Christ-likeness, or in other words, to put it another way, so that we will not be children, 
easily moved, tossed around by whatever wind of doctrine may come. To be moved easily, to be taken in by any doctrine that comes our way, is a mark of childishness, Paul says, of immaturity. It's the opposite of a, of a mature manhood, as he says. For a church to not care about growth in doctrine. The church cannot grow up into unity of faith, unity in Christ-likeness, Christ-likeness if it is tossed around. If it's not firmly rooted in good doctrine. For a professing Christian to make doctrinal ignorance a badge of honor or a source of pride, which happens, you know, doctrine divides, I don't go there. You know, I want unity, so I'm not going to go there. Doctrine divides. It's as sad as a 40-year-old man believing in Santa Claus. That's what it is. That's what he's saying. It's childishness. You see here the importance of doctrine, the importance of theology in the pursuit of unity. If you're not maturing in your doctrine, in your understanding of the knowledge of Christ, your understanding of the faith once for all delivered to the saints, you will be moved by every wind of doctrine that comes your way. And this actually, we're told here, contributes to disunity. So desiring to open up the Scriptures and see what it says, and grow in our understanding of it, is a way to pursue unity. And the opposite is true. If we have no desire for that, we're actually contributing to disunity. And immaturity. Notice also in these verses that this teaching is crafty, and it's the result of deceitful schemes. This is, help, this is important. Many think that... False teaching will be obvious. It's unbelievable how prevalent that understanding is. But that's not how we're told about it in Scripture. We're told, we're given descriptions like this. That it's deceitful schemes. Schemes. It's thought out. It's a scheme. We're told it will be crafty. Clever. Right? Subtle. We're told elsewhere... It'll be taught by wolves who look like sheep. This is telling us to be diligent. It's telling us this is going to be difficult to discern. Another reason that gift of discernment is helpful. And so overcoming this, these winds of doctrine, not being pushed around by these, involves diligence and care. Involves being built up in the Word, involves growth in Christ's likeness, involves all of us helping with this process by building one another up with our gifts. So, one obvious application of this is that we are to be those who study the Word of God. We should come, I would say, to church as often as we can. As often as we can. And, I would say, on a Sunday, um, just a couple things that might be helpful. Um, before coming, I would recommend just studying the passage that, we're gonna be, uh, study, that, we're gonna be, that I'll be preaching from. And typically, you'll know what that is, because it's whatever we left off from the week before. 
but you can read it in advance. Get your mind there. Think through it. What is this saying? You know, what's going on here? Any questions you have? You know, think through those. See if they get answered. If not, you know, we'll hash it out after. But, um, but just, just, it's a helpful way to prepare. Another good way to prepare, go to bed at a good time on Sunday. I guess we can sleep in on Sundays, so sleep in or go to bed at a good time. Uh, you know, come ready. Uh, you know, staying up till three in the morning to watch a movie and then getting up early and going to church, that's a bad, you know, that's a bad way to prepare uh, to hear the word of God. Pray before you come. Pray that you would be able to focus, be able to uh, hear the word, be able to be transformed by the word of God, that you'd have increased understanding, that the spirit would help. All of these things can be helpful uh, preparations, even for coming Sunday, um, to sit under the word. Obviously, we should be reading the Word, testing the things that we are taught. Again, doctrine is not the problem of unity. It's one of the marks of unity, is growing in in doctrine, our understanding. It's one of the goals, oneness in doctrine. In fact, to not discuss it or to not grow in it, as we've seen, is detrimental to unity. With this, I'll just say, you know, understanding the word is not always simple. There are truths here that aren't that hard that a child can understand. A child can understand the gospel. A child can understand that they are sinful, that, they, uh, that God is holy. They can understand there's consequences for their sin. They can understand Jesus died to save sinners. They can, uh, they can repent of their sin and trust Christ. The Lord saves children. We believe this. There are some truths that are that simple, but if you want to mine the depths of all those same truths, uh, we'll be at it forever. And sometimes it does involve hard work, um, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Don't just raise your arms and say, well, you know, people have tried and smarter people than I, and I just, you know, who am I? This doesn't give you that option. We are to be growing together in our understanding of the word. Also, we should be reminded here of the importance of pursuing Christ-likeness. That's part of maturity, is Christ-likeness. This is one of the goals of being equipped, of being built up, is that we would be more like Christ. This is one of the ways we press on toward unity, is each of us and together pursuing Christ-likeness. And so, I exhort us, you, to consider areas in need of growth, ways you do fall short, to confess those to God, to repent of those things, and to thank God that your only hope of righteousness is Christ and and not yourself, and then guard against those sins, make war against your sin, fight and battle your sin, looking to Christ, who is your only hope of righteousness. But let us not you know, it's easy. It's easy to just kind of lose that edge and sort of, we, we maybe slide towards sin. Make war with that sin. We must be reminded that our goal for one another and for ourselves is to reach the fullness of the measure of Christ. And while again, that too will come only on the last day, we pursue that even now. 
I just want to read as we bring this to a close, verses 15 and 16, which really are a summary of what Paul's been explaining. So let's read this together. He says, rather, so rather than being tossed by the waves and the wind of every wind of doctrine, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So speaking the truth in love, teaching, building up, is how we grow up in every way, it says here, into Christ. Into Christ who himself builds his body by equipping each member for service, by giving gifts. Unity is founded on the one foundation of the triune God's work of redemption, and it's then something we are to maintain. The Lord has given provision to make this happen, namely spiritual gifts. The teaching gifts equip the body so that every one of us can exercise our own gifts in a godly way, and together we grow up in our doctrine and grow up in Christ's likeness until we attain the unity of the faith. This never ends. We pursue this to the end. All our lives, until the Lord calls us home or until He returns. And we are perfectly made one. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for this text. Thank You we can gather and open Your Word. And Lord, we are grateful that You would save sinful people like us. And we uh, just confess to you our great need for Jesus. God, I pray that you would build us into a church that is eager to maintain this unity. That we are eager to keep this. That we are eager to make this this truth that we are one body uh, a, a, a reality on the outside. That we would be one. That we would love one another well. That we would be quick to forgive one another when we sin against each other. That we would be of one mind. That we would be like Christ. God, I pray you'd renew our desire for this as individuals, but also as as a church, as a body. That we would together long for that day and spur one another on to that end. God, we pray that you would, as we do this, that you would... Uh, Just by your grace, equip us, encourage us, strengthen us. May we all exercise the gifts that you've given us. Thank you for your provisions that we're not left here on our own to figure this out. And I pray that we would indeed maintain this great unity that you've given us and that we would long for that day when that unity will be one when the Lord Jesus returns. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.